Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is poet Matthew Dickman, a visiting assistant professor of creative writing at the University of Oregon. Dickman earned his BA at the University of Oregon in 2001 and an MFA in creative writing at the University of Texas, Austin. He's the author of the collection's All-American Poem, winner of the APR Hanukkah First Book Prize, Mayakovsky's Revolver, and Wonderland. In 2016, he co-authored a collection, Brother, with his brother, Michael. His latest collection, Husbandry, was published in 2022. Dickman's honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Sarton Award for Poetry from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Thanks, Matthew, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. I'm happy to be here. So first, tell us a little bit about your background and how you and your twin brother, Michael, be both became poets. Well, we, my twin brother and I and our little sister grew, grew up uh, in a single-parent household with our mom in Portland, Oregon. I, I naturally just want to speak for both my twin and I because it happened around the same time, but I'll just speak for myself, which is to say that we got interested in poetry in high school. That's when we got interested in it. And we had a mentor in high school, our teacher, Ernie Cachado, who was our English teacher and drama instructor. And he really encouraged us to read poems. He introduced us to people like Pablo Neruda. I stumbled somehow in my Catholic high school, there was a copy of Anne Sexton poems in the library. And I found that, and I thought that was really exciting to read. She was writing about things, feelings, and other things that weren't being taught in the classroom. And I also came from a neighborhood where men did not share their feelings at all. And, and the fact that you could have a space where you made something, you made something out of your inner life, and, and you could express yourself in a way that wasn't through silence or violence, seemed really attractive to me. And I just kept, kept being like a moth to a flame, just kept being led to poems that way. I know you spent a lot of time in Powell's, yeah. So say a little bit about the, how, what you guys did when you were in Powell's. Yeah, I mean, it's not very exciting, but I, I mean, it was exciting to realize we grew up in the Lentz neighborhood of Portland, which is, and we were off of 92nd and Foster. But when we realized you could take a bus and leave the neighborhood, that was huge. And then when that bus led all the way downtown to Powell's Books, that was huge too. We would just roam the bookstore and Back then, there wasn't social media, there weren't social platforms, there wasn't book talk or anything like that. And so we would pick up a, a book that we'd read a couple poems out of and really love it. And then we would just look on the back and whoever gave the blurb, we'd go read their books. And then we'd look on the backs of their books. And we would just spend our rainy days at Powell's drinking coffee and reading reading books you know really cool stuff like just like <laughs> post skateboarding cool stuff I, I know you guys were really cool back then sure so you earned your BA at U of O and looking back how did your undergrad experience here inform your identity and practice as a poet it informed it informed it wholly informed it uh, we came well I came here initially and then my twin brother followed uh, only because Dorian Locks, the poet Dorian Locks, taught at the school at the time. And she became 
a mentor and a friend to both my brother and I, and then her husband, the poet Joe Millar, became friends and, and a mentor. And while we were here, we met a bunch of other writers, both teachers and students. Uh, another undergrad, Michael McGriff, who's uh, also a published poet who did his undergrad at U of O, uh, I met him here. Uh, met Major Jackson, who was in graduate school at the time here. And they became deep friendships that have lasted decades. I'm 48, so it's been a long time. So you mentioned Major Jackson. I wanted to talk about that. So one of the poems in the volume, Husbandry, is called Fathers of Invention. Uh, and it records an experience with Major Jackson, the poet Major Jackson, who's a UO MFA al alumnus mm -hmm. and, um, and a very celebrated poet. And in fact, I had the pleasure of interviewing him last year. Um, say a little bit about how you came to know him before you read that poem for us. Uh, standing outside of Tsunami Books, <laughs> D Dory Ann Locks and Joe Millar and some other poets were giving a reading that night. And I was standing outside, probably smoking a cigarette at the time, and got introduced to Major. And Major looked at me and said, well, are you reading tonight? And I said, no, 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 they're, just, they're having real poets read poems tonight. <laughs> uh, and we just connected in that moment and became friends. And, and while he was in grad school here and I was an undergrad, uh, we hung out all the time, drinking coffee, going out for beers talking about poets we loved, from Derek Walcott to Seamus Heaney to Rita Dove to Dorian Locks to Joe Millar, and uh, sharing poems back and forth. So uh, the poem that, that uh, talks about Major in the volume is called Fathers of Invention. Would you read it for us? Sure. You know what I should have done is, uh, is checked where it was first. There it is, page 94. The Fathers of Invention. Major Jackson and I are fond of drinking dark beer and talking about fathers, of his who would leave and return, leave and return like a season wearing a nightshirt made out of fall leaves and wood smoke, of mine who no one can say left as he was never really there, a dream someone has about money though when they wake up, there is nothing but a penny's worth of light on the pillow next to them. When the ghosts of our fathers ask us to set the table, we set the table. But no matter how we fold the napkins, they are always unhappy. When the bodies of our fathers ask our bodies to be theirs, we set ours on fire. Now our own sons are staring us down like bear cubs, staring down a darkness from a forest that only exists for them. Now we are inventing it as we go. We have experimented with holding their hands and hugging them, sitting on the couch with them. We are trying to make sure their feelings don't turn into baseball bats or guns or the unmade bed of an inpatient's medicinal ozone. Before we were the fathers of sons, we were just sons trying to survive our fathers. Flying down a hill inside a blue Jetta with a Blaupunk cassette player 
and when our sadness threatened to flood the whole car, Major turned up the roots so that whatever darkness he and I thought we were heading toward lifted and a kind of light pulled up into the driveways of our minds like a father returned home from a business trip he should never have made. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful yeah. poem. Thanks. So this is a poem from the, your most recent volume, Husbandry. First, tell us a little bit about how that volume came together. It was a, it's a COVID book. Yeah. What happened? How did that happen? Uh, well, during lockdowns, Dorian Locks and, and Joe Millar and the poet Sharon Olds and Michael McGriff and I uh, started gathering once a week uh, on a Zoom call. And we would just play this poetry game we've played forever, which is picking out some random words, everyone writing it down, going off for 45 minutes, writing a poem, bring it back, sharing it. And that's it. Not, it's not a workshop. It's not uh, critical thinking. It's just making something and celebrating the making of it. And so we were, all of us were writing a poem a week basically, first draft of a poem a week. And during, during those, during COVID, the initial lockdowns and the beginning of, of COVID for the West Coast anyway, uh, was also around the time that my children's mother and I were separating. So these, these things about, you know, separation and loss and also uh, parenting, being a father, being suddenly a single father, uh, were issues that were on my heart and in my mind. So it, those became the poems that became husbandry. I had not planned on writing husbandry. It was not, I did not work out, you know, I'm gonna write this and this. It was just at the end of a couple years of COVID, I suddenly had a lot of pages and it made sense that they went together. And that poem uh, for Major Jackson, Fathers of Invention, it does come from he and I, our own conversations about fathers, but also the kind of conversation we've been having. In my first book, I have a poem in there called The Black Album, and it ends with a moment that is pulled right out of mine and Major's lives together, where we were driving down a dark road in Vermont and a bear had leapt out in front of the car. And then in Major's second to last book, he had a poem in there called, I think it's called The Romantics of Franconia, where he talks about things that happened to he and I in Franconia, New Hampshire. And so I just thought I would keep the conversation going <laughs> by, by writing The Fathers of Invention. So the volume contains a long poem called Husbandry, but I'm interested in why you gave the volume the name Husbandry. Yeah, the title poem is a four-part sequential poem. It's, I mean, it has to do with twofold. It has to do playing off the idea of husbandry of raising livestock and also uh, playing with the word husband of me always wanting to be a husband, but never, <laughs> never, I've, I've not quite attained that. So I wanted to look at that word in a couple different ways. Though I was in Powell's books and I was in the poetry section and this was a long, a while ago now. And this young couple were looking at books of poems. And all of a sudden, then the guy said, oh, hey, look, this book is called Husbandry. And I was standing over here and I was like, <laughs> I was like, uh? And 
And the woman he was with was like, oh man, your dad would really love, love that because of the farm or something. You know, like I think his, the, father, the father actually raised livestock. And so they bought it. And I just thought, how disappointed this farmer's <laughs> gonna be when there's nothing about an real animals at all. The only animals in the book are children. <laughs> That's a great story. Um, would you read the first poem in the volume? Sure, I'd love to. First poem is called Goblin. In each of the stories where children are led out of their beds at night by a broken father or angry stepmother and marched off to be fed into the mouth of a dark wood, the children are supposed to die. In some stories, they do. In others, they survive, but must kill a witch or an animal in order to live, which is, to be fair, a different kind of death, but a death all the same. Imagine the fog around their small ankles like a shoreline in the dark. Imagine how cold their skin would be beneath the thin overcoats of their nightshirts, the little heat the parents are giving off beginning to dissipate like dew as the children take that last step into the copse of trees and are swallowed up. There are so many ways to eat the young. Yesterday, Owen was riding his red radio flyer tricycle around and around our red dining room table. Get me, Papa, get me. You're a goblin, come get me. And I know I shouldn't have really become a goblin, that that was not what he was asking for. He wanted his Papa and a funny voice. Instead, my body grew like a shadow and turned green, craven, and heavy. You can't run from the goblin, the goblin, the goblin, I sang and chased him round the table. You can't run from the goblin, I'm going to eat your skin. Then he stopped, knowing that I was no longer there, and looked up at my face, and not seeing my face, began to cry and shake. I knelt down and held him and said, I'm sorry, it's just Papa. Was that too scary? We won't play that anymore. And he calmed a little and said, I don't want him, Papa. Tell the goblin not to come back. When you ask parents how they ever raised their children, they will often say, half the time I had no idea what I was doing. But I think we do know what we are doing. And so does the forest and the dark in the forest and the wind in the dark and the beasts, the broken fathers, the angry stepmothers, the unconditional bond become errant. Also an amazing poem. So as that poem makes clear, it's a very good example of uh, many of the poems in the volume respond to the challenges and joys of being a, a parent and a mm -hmm. father. Before you were a parent, mm -hmm. you were also a poet. Mm -hmm. How do you think parenting has transformed your poetry? I, th my answer to that would be, it hasn't, I don't believe it's changed my work in uh, formal ways. It's changed the impulse of my work. When I was younger and single and had no children or anything like that. I, I mean, I, I loved poems. I made poems to, you know, explore my inner self. But I also like, you know, making things for 
praise, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I, I, I sort of, I like the attention. And uh, having kids, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm really not in search for that anymore. When I make work now, whether it's poems or short stories or whatever it is, more and more uh, in my heart of hearts, I feel like this is just a, um, it is uh, evidence of me being on earth. So when I'm not, my kids will have something to go back to and, and not just their own memories and me raising them, but will have something physical to go back to and to hear me spe hopefully speak to them in, in some way. So I think perhaps they've changed some intentionality of making work. I don't think they've changed. I mean, I grew, I grew up working nine to five jobs. I'm used to not having time mm -hmm. and still writing. I'm sure a lot of people will say, oh, well now, you know, I, I, I really have to get away to write or I, I only have like an hour to write. I've only ever had an hour to write, mm -hmm. so nothing's changed in that way. But yeah, uh, my, uh, the intention is maybe different. So your eldest son is a teenager. 17, yeah. Has he read any of your verse? He has, yeah. He's read this book and he's read some other poems. Uh, he's such an amazing young man and he's really into speech and debate and he's really good at it. Uh, and just recently, uh, I felt so moved and, and honored by this. Uh, he used a poem of mine from Mayakovsky's Revolver uh, to be in a, a speech he gave about poetry, about deal about elegies in poetry and dealing with someone dying through poems. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, you you uh, spoke a little bit about um, that you didn't think parenting had transformed your poems formally. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about form. Mm -hmm. In Husbandry, almost all the poems are written in, they're relatively short poems written in brief couplets. Yeah. Why? Why did you choose that? I mean, that's not the only mode in which you write. So why, for this volume, was that the right mode? That really came out of my last book, out of Wonderland. I had, before Wonderland, I, well, I came to a moment before writing or revising the poems in Wonderland where I realized that for a good chunk of time now, I'd been writing poems. And I had, but I've been writing the, the same kind of poem, I felt. They were long, long line narrative poems that uh, told some sort of story, were maybe a little funny, maybe a little sad, and then came back around to wherever they started. And I had a little panic. I thought, if I'm getting older, if I'm changing, if I'm living in a world that demands change, then why is it that I constantly sit down and to express myself in the world, express it in the exact same way? Why aren't I articulating it differently? Even within the same genre of poetry, why aren't, like, why aren't I doing that? Mm. Because at some point, some people have said that they like that. So in Wonderland, I started having stanzas. I mean, before I had no stanzas in any poem. And so started with having stanzas and messing around with that and being more free. And then in husbandry, some of the poems had couplets, some had tercets, and, and then I just, I liked how clean it looked. And I also liked all these poems together 
They're, they're individual poems, but they're all about the same moment. It's all the same moment, the same time. Uh, and so that they're, that they're all in couplets, I feel, anchors them in that same moment. It's both a collection of many poems and just really one long poem over two years. Very interesting, very interesting. So would you read us the final poem in the volume? Sure. This is a poem called Returning. On the days the children are with their mother, the weight of them somehow lightens and expands. Wait, I think. Don't go is what I feel. Though I know they will be returning, though I know they are loved by her, I walk around the two-bedroom palace I have made for the three of us and lift their dirty clothes into my arms and cradle them. I gather all my children's dirty clothes around me, fanning them out like a gown, and wait for them to come home. The smell of them rising up from the pleats of the gown, the sounds of them still hanging in the steam from the pasta. I am their lady-in-waiting and cannot wait to dress them again, to feed and bathe them, to hold them and smell their skin, but especially to feed them, that most of all. I pet the paws of their stuffed animals and say, don't worry, they'll be home soon. Why is everything such a death? Death is a gradient, a going away and a coming back. Death, a bee, a fat one, alone and lost in winter. Fuck death, give me life. Even the one I've had with all its stupid troubles, with all its waiting around for love, with all its ignoring love, and with all its mistaking meanness for love. Give me a sink full of dirty dishes, give me a cup of coffee, give me my children, their sticky hands and feet, and finally, give me a first kiss that is also the last. So as I mentioned, this year you're a visiting assistant professor in U of O's celebrated MFA program. So tell us a little bit about how you approach teaching the writing of poetry. Yeah, I, oh man, we might not have time for this. <laughs> I'm, I, am, I am not a fan of uh, the kind of old school formal workshop. To me, it reminds me of like uh, an, uh, 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 an unhealthy family dinner <laughs> where everyone's sitting around anxious to make you know, dad or mom at the head of the table happy. And what people call revi a revision workshop is often just an editing workshop. It's not a, having a revision of the poem. And I think also workshops for decades have been sort of created with uh, the, a sort of a, a disbelief, which is to say, you have brought your poem into my class and we do not believe it because you brought it in here because there must be something wrong with it. And we're here to help you fix it. And in extension, there's something obviously wrong with you because you've brought in this thing. And more than semantics, I like to rearrange that so that the basis of the workshop is belief. I believe in you. I believe in the poem you brought in. And I want to wonder about the poem in community with people. 
and so uh, so I'm not interested in uh, you know comments like oh well maybe this is two poems or you know or I'm not even interested in everyone in the group talking if you don't have anything to say I think that's something else that there's an anxiety of intellect that gets created mm -hmm. in a workshop where you have to say something you have to say something smart and that's not my experience with art and uh, I'm not an academic, so my experience with poems or art, life, music, love, all comes into the workshop, and that, that's the sort of lens through which I look at people's work and try to guide the discussion. So you say you're not an academic, do you consider yourself a teacher? Yeah, I think I'm a teacher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've raised two kids. Uh, I, I teach uh, workshops at a place called The Attic in Portland, Oregon where I have an ama amazing students who the median age is probably around 70 years old. These poets bring in work. Every workshop that these poets show up at, they're bringing in dynamic work. And so far at the U of O, I've been teaching two undergrad poetry classes. They're full of amazing poets. I hope I'm teaching them, I hope I'm teaching them something worthwhile which is even just to believe in themselves as writers and to continue to read and write. So I, I want to ask you about this one story about I Know About You. It's when you met Allen Ginsberg. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how you met him. Uh, well, I met Allen, how old was I? I'm, I don't think I was quite 21. Uh, I do know that the, day, the night before I met him was the last time I ever dropped acid. <laughs> That was, I had dropped acid the night before. It was great. Took this long walk with a friend of mine. And then the next day, my brother woke me up. He was running off to work. And he had heard on the radio that Allen Ginsberg was going to be at the Pals downtown signing books. So a friend of mine picked me up, and we went down there and got in line. And uh, when I got my book signed, uh, I was trying to talk to... Alan and he s said something like, "How's your love life?" And I said, uh, "I don't, I don't know." Also, to be honest, I mean, I don't think I was I don't think the acid had yeah. completely left my system. <laughs> and then my friend Marshall and I went around downtown, went to a cafe, and then we came back to Powell's. And I went upstairs just to see the empty room again where he had sat, and he was still there talking to some people. And I, he looked over at me, and I, I remember I immediately picked up a, this like big photo book, and I was like staring at a picture of like Nazis marching down a street, and realized I had picked up this like World War II, uh, you know, photos of Hitler or something. And I put it down, and then my friend Marshall came up and said, "You have to go talk to him." So I said something that only a teenager only an 18 or 19 year old would do. I walked over, first of all, I interrupted his conversation with these two women, uh, which I would never do now. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I'm sorry, how's your love life? And he said, well, I'm very old. And I said, well, <laughs> I mean, I said, well, I'm not promising anything, but do you want to come meet my twin brother? And he was like, yes. yes. And so we went to a great coffee shop in Old Town and with three other people, and we all just hung out there, it was wonderful. And I hung out with him the next couple of days. We meditated together, shared poems. He was so kind uh, to me. And he even wrote some postcards back and forth a little bit after that. It was really nice to meet 
like a hero of yours, a literary hero, and you know, have them not be a scumbag, have yeah. them be like really <laughs> kind person, which he was. Uh, that's another great story. Um, so what are you working on now? Can you tell us a little bit about it? I'm always writing poems in some way. Uh, I just finished the last thing, the last poetry thing I finished. I'm, I have all, all my students, their final projects is not a paper on prosody. It's not a ton of revisions. They're each making a chapbook or like a poetry object. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten the first wave of, of those being turned in. They're amazing and beautiful. And I'm also, because I am part of the class, making one. So I wrote an elegy to my older brother. And then I got a little wooden casket about this big. And I rolled up the elegy. And then I, I with wood glue, I sealed it shut. And then I've destroyed the There's no, it's not on my computer. I ripped up the extra page. And so that poem only exists in this casket that will be um, with these other chapbooks. And I'm also teaching myself how to write short stories mm -hmm. and novellas. So I've been working on a couple different collections of short stories. And I just finished writing a novella, which was really fun to do. Huh, fascinating, fascinating. Writing prose is, I mean, writing prose is great. You just keep writing. <laughs> There's no line breaks. There's no stand. I mean, there's paragraphs if you want. It's it's a lot of fun. Cool. So um, Matthew, we're almost out of time. This sure. will be my last question. Um, have you read anything recently that you would recommend? Yes, uh, I just I've just finished reading everything that the fiction writer, Scottish fiction writer Ali Smith, has written. So I'm now. It's my first experience of reading everything someone's published in book form and that writer's still alive and I'm just waiting for the next thing. But uh, the, the last book of Smith's that I read is a novel called Here But For The. It's not the last one that she published, but it's the last one I read. And it is an amazing novel. The whole situation is that a dinner party happens in a really beautiful house outside of London in the country. And during that party, a guest who no one really knows very well goes up between the dinner and the pudding. They think he's going up to use the bathroom or something. But he goes up and he finds the guest quarters and locks himself in and doesn't leave. And then it's the repercussions of that for like the people in the house and then the town and then the country of England, and it, it's amazing. It's amazing. I love Ali Smith. I love her style and her her voice. Uh, if anyone is is looking for a novel or collection of short stories uh, to keep a, a little light happening during winter, they should pick up an Ali Smith book. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us and share your work with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with the poet Matthew Dickman, visiting assistant professor of creative writing at the University of Oregon and author of, most recently, the collection Husbandry. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>